Right. Well, first of all, thank you all for coming out on such a miserable Friday afternoon. Um, this talk uh, is about exploring the human form, which is what I deal in. Um, and when I was preparing this, I was thinking, what, what do I like to hear when I listen to artists speak? And one thing that stands out is what I don't want to hear is art jargon. So I'm going to try not to put any phrases in or um, say anything that just is gobbledygook. Um, and apologies in advance if I do, and I'll try to catch myself if I do. Um, also, I think what I like to hear is um, the various experiences the artist will have had throughout his or her life. And so that was my approach here today, expecting that that's probably what you'd want to hear about. Um, so I'm going to give a, a little bit of um, a brief personal background. Um, then I'm going to talk about how I make my sculptures, some technical information, and then talk about current projects. So uh, I don't expect you to read all that, and it's not going to be like this forever uh, for the rest of the talk. So, um, But I just put this up because some people like to know these details. But basically, I just wanted to say that uh, I do have a, a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. That was sort of my first schooling. Um, but I had always been very interested in in um, well, ceramics in particular, and so uh, I changed direction after I graduated, um, and that's all that is about. And we can go back to that after the talk if if you really want any of these details. But really, I'm going even further back, where I'm going to talk about my family life. Um, this has a bit of re relevance to the current project that I'm working on, so I will refer to to um, my family again later on. But basically, these are that's me and my three brothers um, a million years ago. Uh, those are my twin autistic brothers on the left. They're severely autistic. And that's my younger brother uh, on the right, on my right. Um, and there's about 18 uh, months between all of those births. Um, and I was thinking about um, my childhood. I have been thinking about my childhood quite a bit lately, thinking it was fairly sort of normal-ish, you know. Um, we lived in a house, and I had a mother and a father and a brother. But my two uh, older brothers were, um, be being autistic, were um, living in a what then was called an institution for seven years. And so that sort of cloud of... Um, disability and away and what's going on and not quite understanding that sort of permeated, I think, my childhood. And I, as I say, refer to that a little later because um, it has some relevance. Uh, a little bit more detail is that I'm a second-generation American, um, meaning my father's family was from Ireland and my mother's family was from Italy. And in Boston, where I'm from, that was a very common uh, mixing <clears throat> for the first-generation Americans. Um, probably my mother had the most influence on me as a child. Um, her father and her brothers were in the um, carpentry or the uh, building trades, construction work. That's sort of what they did. Um, she, being female, the 40s and 50s, didn't go into that sort of thing, although I think she always wanted to. I think she really would have enjoyed that kind of work. And in fact, when she got married 
and she and my father fed up, uh, uh, set up house. Her house was her canvas, and I think she, she um, put her creativity into various things. She basically did all the DIY. I was her assistant, sometimes, you know, reluctantly, but I learned a lot um, from her. I'm not afraid of tools. I'm not afraid of getting stuck in. Um, she also taught me the sort of feminine skills of knitting, crocheting, sewing, needlework. So I, I would say I had a fairly basic um, and very extensive um, experience and practical experience on how to work with my hands. Um, however, I would say also that I have almost no memories of art in school. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I took art classes. I just... I just don't remember anything. I don't remember any inspiring teacher, um, anything I did. I'm sure things got put onto the refrigerator, but uh, you know, I just don't have any sort of thing that, that um, I could draw upon when I was thinking about that time of my life. With two exceptions, though. One was that uh, when I was about, um, well, from about seven or eight to about 12, where I was living, um, school children could attend ballet les- uh, sessions, ballet performances at the um, auditorium in the place where I was living, which was Portland, Maine. This is New England, um, if, you're, if you're familiar with the States. And uh, I really welcomed the opportunity to, to go because, well, first of all, get out of school. Um, and... I just liked being in this world of um, music, beautiful movement, um, very traditional uh, ballet this was, very elegant dancers, athletic bodies. It just made a, a huge impact on me. I think that's come out in my later work. Um, the other uh, thing I wanted to mention um, was a science project that I had to do when I was about, about nine and I did my project on Einstein. <laughs> and um, I don't know what I would have said about Einstein or his general theory of relativity, probably nothing. But what I remember from this experience was making a bust of uh, a ceramic, or uh, sorry, a clay head of him uh, out of baker's clay. So my mother would have made this stuff, this baker's clay it's called. And I made a head of him. And uh, I remember she let me use uh, her makeup to put eyeliner around his eyes and lipstick on his lips. And I put cotton balls for the hair. I was very proud of that. And um, (laughs) I wish I had a photograph of it, Um, but uh, alas, that's gone. But I think that was a very positive experience. Um, I did win a little award for that, so that was quite quite, uh, uh, an experience that has stuck in my head. Um, But... uh, I'm going to skip ahead now um, to say, well, that's sort of past influences, formative influences. Uh, And then uh, after I graduated with this degree in criminal justice and I worked a little bit in the field, um, I really did want to get stuck into clay because that was my real love. I loved the material. So I then became more, uh, I suppose, self-educated. So I'm aware this film is this this talk is being filmed, and um, I did get an email from somebody who was interested in showing this film to her art students, and I suppose 
um, the reason why I'm mentioning, mentioning this is that I don't have a, a traditional art background. Didn't um, go to the types of schools you might, in this country, might set you on a certain path. And from all the artists I've ever met, um, there is no one clear path. So I suppose to the art students out there, I just want to say, um, your life does begin when you graduate, and you do have to make your own path. And so I decided that I really loved clay. Then I had to figure out what, you know, what do I do with that. And for me, it was um, learning how to throw, because that's what I would throw on a potter's wheel. So um, that's what I did. So I made lots and lots of pots, um, and I did uh, eventually... Um, Join a ceramics cooperative and made and sold work and taught and so on. Uh, but I'm narrowing down my collection of pictures to just show you a few, uh, a few that I suppose I still like. The ones on the left that's combining different clays and and when you put your clay on the wheel and, and pull it up, obviously you get that kind of effect. Um, on the right. I use white clay, but I'm carving into the clay and um, using a black ceramic material to give the contrast between the black and the white. Um, then I did a lot of what I um, called sculptural vases and bowls. That's sort of what all I did. And technically, these would be called... Um, oh, what's the term? Altering the throne form, it's called. So you throw on the wheel and then you alter it. You muck about with it. So that's what I like doing. And I, th I think, I think, I don't know if you might think this, that, you know, the sort of um, ballet gestures might be coming through here. I wasn't thinking about it at the time, but I think that was my influence for a lot of my work. These bowls just show you a couple of the same techniques of uh, coloring the clay, throwing a pot on the wheel, and then carving into it. Again, just throwing, using thrown forms and altering them by cutting, poking. On the right side, just glazing certain areas, leaving the clay exposed in other areas. Right, and <clears throat> just at the same time, exploring different ways of uh, decorating ceramics. The top left, you have um, the lower temperature range where you can get more bright colors. On the right, that's the a process called raku. I can explain these later if anybody's interested. And on the bottom, uh, those are pots from what's called a, a pit firing or a primitive firing, um, where you're just using a, a, as fuel a combustible material like a well, around the world and throughout the ages, something like cow dung, which is also what I use when it's dried, of course, in dried patties. Right, so um, at the time I was um, doing the other work, I was also um, starting to study art and art history um, and drawing, life drawing. Um, during the time I was at school, so this is the uh, sort of mid mid-80s, I think it's the same in this country, you couldn't find life sculpture, life uh, drawing. It just was not cool. Um, it was, it was, life in human form was just not being done. 
but um, you know I'm stubborn and you know you seek out what you need so I did start drawing and then I made these figures from my drawings um, and again uh, just sort of putting them into a ceramic context and uh, putting a backing on them and these hung on the wall I made a lot of these now then I did finally get a, uh, a little scholarship to take a life sculpture class we had a model these are my first ones you see I'm still um, carving in as if it was a pot uh, I think when I finally was confronted with the idea of not only a, a figure in front of me, a human being in front of me, but all the weight of history, you know, those damn Greeks uh, and Romans and um, what they did with the human form. So it's a bit daunting. Um, and also being in California, which is where I was at the time, and being in this at artistic atmosphere of, you know, express yourself however you want, Finding this, getting back to basics was, was really tough. So it has been um, a journey for myself of just keep learning, keep looking, keep studying the human form. Uh, and so and just keep working. Um, th these are things I did, you know, just sort of from my imagination uh, after I gave birth, which <laughs> might, um, you might get from that. These are the last things I did um, before moving over here to this country. So uh, that's still while well being in San Francisco. Moved over here in uh, 1999. And then I set up my studio practice in Farthinghoe. That's a little village between Bamber and Brackley. I had to go there because although I live in Oxford, there was nothing available. And I managed to find this place, and I've been there ever since. It's on a farm. At the time, it was more unusual. Now it's more usual that people are going to um, outbuildings and you know using uh, sheds, and so on. And I have three different um, strands to my studio practice. I continue to look at the figure by teaching. Uh, I teach from my studio and also teach at an art school um, in Oxford. I make and sell limited edition sculptures, like the ones on display here at the library. And I um, devise and execute projects of my own that I um, set up for myself. So I'm going to, I think teaching self-explanatory, I'm going to now talk about these sculptures. Um, I'm not, I wasn't going to go into detail about the sculptures because I thought maybe after um, I'm finished, we, if anybody's interested, we could go out and, and have a look at some of the ones that are on display here. Um, the Hippie Lady series, the pictures on the left, they're here at the library. That one on the far left was the first one I made when I moved to the UK. Again, sort of thinking about motherhood and um, what's, what, do we, what do we need? <laughs> what do we need our body for? And we certainly need our hips to hold the, the squirming child, and we need our hands and feet. That's sort of what I was thinking with this Hippie Lady series. And as time has gone on and I add to this series, um, I put them into yoga poses. Um, the one on the right uh, is about five feet. It's about yay tall. Um, and that's 
cast, the face is a cast of my, my daughter's face when she was about 10. That piece is called Papoose. And again, just sort of responding to motherhood and not wanting them to grow up and stay little and beautiful and cute at that age. But alas, they do grow up. Um, a couple of other sort of pieces I did early on here. Um, that one on the left is called Unis- Unipsyche, U-N-I-P-S-C-H-E. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, again, sort of playing with form and figure there. That's about six feet tall. And the one on the right is called Glamour Queen. That's made from soil with uh, bits of um, fool's gold interspersed um, in the soil. And on the top is a tiara. And that was sort of my take on um, my... I used to visit um, the Neolithic caves and... um, France and and also around here, um, Neolithic sites in the UK. I'm just really fascinated with that time period and the figures which used to be called the um, Venus figures. Maybe some of you know what what the ones I mean. They're sort of shaped like this. The uh, British Museum had an exhibition last year, the Ice Age art, of all these figures that are found. I just find that uh, hugely fascinating, mainly because we don't know why they were made, and I really like that idea that we still don't really know. So that's my take of um, a figure in the modern age. Right, so what what kind of uh, work do I do with these limited edition sculptures? I mean, when I'm forced to give a statement, which, you know, you have to do when you apply for grants and all that, this is what I say. You know, I've been a freelance professional sculptor, for a decade, and uh, I specialize in abstract reinterpretations of the human form, creating pieces that reflect the themes of solitude and fleeting thoughts or emotions. I mean, that's kind of specific and yet vague as well. What I'm just trying to say there is I'm not trying to prescribe any thought process to the viewer. I mean, I hope that um, the work can be interpreted in, in many ways. And what I'm after is that gut feeling when you see an artwork that goes, ooh, I like that. And how it's articulated, it's just words. And, but we live in a culture that's all about words. But I'm more after the, um, ooh, what's that gut feeling? It's more elusive. Okay. Um, so now I'm going to go on to these projects that I've done over the years. If you have a look at my website, um, I have a section on projects, and I've got a lot of projects that I've done over the years. Uh, and I'm going to just talk about a couple. This one here, from the inside out, uh, was, and here's some jargon now, a site-specific installation that I did at um, Sulgrave Manor. It just means that I chose the, the place, the apple orchard within this place, and um, made sculptures to fit in there, and then the exhibition was up for a year. Um, <clears throat> and this is relevant... Um, to the Open University because two of the pieces that I made for this project are here on the grounds now, and you'll, you'll see them in here. Um, what else do I want to tell you about that? Uh, I think that's it. It's not very much jargon there. So uh, I've got a little video that I made myself back in 2006, back in the old uh, iMovie days on a Mac. I'm 
the, I, the AV people here. I do apologize for the quality, but um, it's seven minutes, and I just thought it would give you an overview of that particular project, but also I show how, the, how I make stuff, how I make sculptures. So um, where'd it go? There we go. Whoops, sorry. Now I click on that. Which do I click on? I did practice this.
Once the clay originals were finished, they were then prepared for the next stage, and that is the making of a plaster waste mold. This is Marcus, who worked with me on the first mold. And here you can see he's taking the liquid plaster and flicking it onto the clay original. We use a flicking motion so as not to trap any air bubbles between the clay original and the plaster. And in this way, we um, are sure to get a very smooth interior of the mold. This project used about uh, 30 bags of plaster, each bag weighing 25 kilos. So we used a lot of plaster, and there was a lot of flicking going on. I since learned that has another meaning here, <laughs> but anyway. After the plaster was applied, scaffolding was attached in order to make the mold secure and strong. On the top, we leave a hole, and into the hole is poured water. The water seeps into the clay. The clay expands and swells, allowing us to separate the different pieces of the mold. We then scoop out the clay, clean up off the mold, put the pieces back together, and allow the pieces to, to dry. Again, this was the method used for all of the various sculptures. The only different approach was with this very tall winter figure where I made the mold as I went along because of the challenging shape of this sculpture. For strength, I created the mold along with the modeling of the sculpture itself. The next stage of the process was, for me, the most fun and interesting because it allowed me to produce a palette of colors. Whereas a painter would use, say, oils or watercolors, I used fiberglass as my medium. I laid the colored fiberglass into the mold, adhering it there with resin, uh, which is at that point in its liquid form. The project used 150 kilos of resin and over 400 meters of fiberglass and lots of disposable gloves. When the resin hardens, the cast is taken out of the mold by chipping away at the plaster. Once the casts emerge from the molds, they just need a little bit of tidying up. The last stage is the application of a polish onto the surfaces of each sculpture. The polish recedes into the pitted areas, producing a contrast between the rough and the smooth textures as well as enhancing the colors. This is Jeff, who sprayed a UV varnish onto each sculpture. These pieces will be on display in the orchard for the entire year, so I wanted to give them an extra protection from the elements. For this project, I attempted to combine many different art methods and techniques and approaches, and I hope that what I have done is made what I like to think of as paintings in the round.
Right. So that was, uh, uh, as I said, that was a project done in uh, 2006, or ended in 2006. Shortly after that, um, my mother died. Um, and then two years after that, my father died. Um, uh, and what I've been thinking about lately um, is this idea of grief and loss, um, and that's sort of what I'm working on currently. Uh, however, that exploration goes back to 97, when um, I was involved in, in um, putting together an exhibition called Hands and Heart, The Art of Healing um, in San Francisco. This uh, involved lots of different um, art uh, artists and uh, materials, uh, paintings, sculptures, videos, uh, as well as, um, in, in this case, a quilt that eventually went into what's called the AIDS quilt. Um, you might know, know that term, the AIDS. Some people might know the AIDS quilt. It's uh, run by a project called the Names Project. Maybe don't know it so much here. But that project started in San Francisco in 87, and um, people from around the world uh, send in their quilts, and they eventually get consolidated uh, into big panels. They're very prescriptive on the size, so this one and all the other ones uh, made and, and included in the Names Project are six feet by three feet. Um, so that's what, what this is. Before my friend died, he told me the design he wanted and the, and the images and so on. So I did the central panel, and then I worked with his sisters um, to gather together some uh, shirts. We, we chose one shirt of his that we cut up into pieces, and then we gave the a piece of the shirt to anyone who wanted to contribute to this quilt. It's not a technique that I made up. It's called a memory quilt. So the sisters made um, the panels that are on the left and right side, and um, other friends contributed um, panels that you see on the bottom. This was exhibited in San Francisco, sent to Boston, where more people uh, added um, their blocks, quilting blocks, sent back to me, I put them on, and then put it into, um, submitted into the names project. So what they do is they take, uh, what is, how many, two, four, six, eight of these panels, and they put them into a huge 12 foot by 12 foot panel. Now the last, I don't know how many there are of these now in the, that have been put together. I think maybe 50,000, maybe 100,000. The, the project is so big now, it cannot be displayed in its entirety. The last time um, you had, whatever, 50,000 of these 12 by 12 panels was in, I think it was 1996 um, in Washington, D.C. There's just, it's just too many of them. It's too large. But, um, yeah, so that was the first time I did a project like that, which was using art to make a memory uh, and, and, and the process of, of using art um, to create uh, uh, something like this. But uh, I think because I was younger, I just didn't sort of really grieve properly, if that makes sense. I just kept on uh, with life, as you do. And uh, it wasn't until 
uh, I think my mother died, that it, not only my friend who died, but other people I've known and other friends that have died, including, of course, my mother, just all kind of went, whew, compounded on me. Um, and I was forced to sort of stop and think about things. And what, um, what I did, again, is work. Uh, but this time I changed from sculptural work into painting. So I did a lot of painting. Um, and about a, in about 2008, I put some of this work together into my latest project, which is called Roots of Sorrow, Grieving Without Finality. Um, this is a triptych, uh, and you can see the scale of it. It's about the size of three doors. Um, and I won't, I won't really talk too much about this, um, only to say that um, I think, yes, one of the um, sort of topics I'm trying to portray in this uh, art project is one of grieving, uh, sorry, as chronic sorrow, this concept of chronic sorrow. And that's where I'm thinking back to my own childhood, where um, if you're not familiar with the term, it's, uh, it had been identified with parents of disabled children, where, you know, if... Um, the child is disabled and not able to participate in certain milestones like other children do, you know, walking, talking, going to school, graduating, all these sort of things. Um, it's a time when a mother or father might be a bit sad, not depressed, but just sad, and it's very normal. And it's my contention that extends to siblings as well. Um, we um, have an idea of, uh, say, uh, older brothers, how... Um, in my case, an idealized idea of what an older brother would be because I didn't essentially have older brothers. They weren't able to give me the kind of guidance and protection or other things I imagine other um, older brothers give to uh, uh, a girl sibling. So that's, that's um, what I'm sort of exploring now. And I, in this project, which I'll go back to, I'm taking my own experience, obviously, but... I'm presenting it as a in a more universal way. So my idea and my thought is that uh, anyone could get into it, could see uh, their own story in this. I've used two two symbols. One is a bird, little bird with a broken wing, that represents our internal vulnerable self. <clears throat> and I'm also using uh, a dried rose, and a dried rose specifically, rather than a, a vibrant rose. Um, because I'm, for me, that's a, what we present to the outside world when we're in this sort of numb state of grief. Now, that's what I think. doesn't mean everybody might think that. But it's a couple of ways, maybe, to get into this. It's very, um, it's like an onion with lots of layers here. Uh, this was exhibited in Milton Keynes last October over at um, Interaction. It's now in Oxford at uh, St. Barnabas Church. And in April, it's going to um, St. Andrew's Healthcare in Northampton to be used internally there <clears throat> with, with a couple of the populations that are in recovery. Um, so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to have this as a resource to be used by people who are, are wanting to go into, and it's not easy, but to want to start thinking about and talking about and exploring um, their own issues of loss and grief. 
Um, the other thing I talk about in this, or I try to address, uh, is this idea of transgenerational transference of sorrow. That's also known as inherited sorrow. So, for example, I know that a lot of uh, people in the Jewish community have been talking about this for, for, for many years. I mean, it's, it's not a, really a new concept. Um, but a, as an individual as well, it's something that, you know, what happens in our past can manifest in, in our present. So, um, again, not, not uh, easy subjects, but uh, things I'm trying to explore. Those are my brothers on the right. And you can see, I mean, we're crossing a street. They can't cross on their own. They need help all the time. So they live in a group home with two others, and they have constant supervision. Uh, and um, just summing up now, um, yeah, so in my current project, I'm just trying to use my own, um, my own experiences to convey them in a nonverbal way because that's what kind of art I do. It's nonverbal. Um, and hope that there's a connection with, with others. Um, and just to sum up, you know, I was trying to think, well, the um, human form and how, how have I been dealing with that over the years? I think I've been doing it in a sort of literal sense. You know, I'm using you know, forms and playing around with the human form and forms within it. Uh, and also metaphysical self sense, exploring the shared experience, a bit art talk, but basically I'm using my own experience doing art, you know, as artists have done throughout the ages. But I think this quote from Quentin Bell, who was a nephew of Virginia Woolf, sort of sums up the idea of um, working from life, a life model. Um, and uh, I guess I'll, I'll read it quickly. And yet when we actually set to work, extraordinary though it may seem, our first impression always is one of a, astonishment. Here we feel is something entirely new. There's something in the construction of human beings which fills one with amazement. Nothing is more intensely alive than a nude. Nothing more sculptural. Nothing more satisfying than shape. Nothing gives more ending satisfaction. I speak for myself, but not only for myself, I think. When I say that there is no more rewarding occupation than work from the model, even on a bad day, even when you're making a mess of things, it's impossible not to feel as if the day takes shape. Uh, sorry, to feel as the day takes shape and captures a suggestion of the beauty of the subject. In sculptural terms, any model is beautiful, and that's very true. It is impossible, I say, not to feel this is one of the best things that life can offer. And I think he's much more articulate than I am, and that sums up what I'm trying to say. So thank you very much um, for listening. And uh, I put my website uh, address up there and email, and yeah, if you'd like to contact me anytime, especially about the projects that I'm doing, um, it's all on there. So thank you very much. Thanks. So are there any questions or comments? Yeah, we can. Uh, the most recent one is not here. Uh, it's on. It's on my website. It's called Emerging, but um, it's you mean of the sculptures that yeah. I do? Yeah. Because they sort of went from very. You went for very big forms. Yeah. And then you, I mean, they're not. They're quite big, but they're not as big as the. Uh, so well. 
two of the two of the bigger forms are on. I'm sorry. What's what, where's the area there in? The Cox area, just outside the shop. Mm -hmm. Really, just kind of cave block. Are they ones from the orchard? They. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I think it's yeah. 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 So those were, were very large. I think when I got uh, when I moved here and had this very large space, I just went a bit wild. And I'm making larger things now. So I went through a period of making large because I could, making more so medium size, and now I'm making larger ones again. Not quite that large, but larger. Yeah. Any other comments? No. Right. Well, we could, if anyone wants to talk about specific sculptures out there, I'd be happy to, to go out and... I mean, I really didn't talk about, you know, how I was thinking this when I made that, because um, I thought we could do that now if you're interested. So, Okay, thank you.